Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Thanks everyone for joining the Mac Emerge podcast again. This is another special COVID-19 episode. And last week we released the episode on simulation pearls with the the adult emergency medicine groups and our leads with Dr. Alex Chorley, Dr. Christopher Hyde, Dr. Sean Mandu, and Dr. Mike Ha. And thanks again for those amazing individuals for dropping their pearls. This week we have a special guest from the PEM world, the Pete's Emergency Medicine world, with one of our familiar names who's been on this podcast before and has had amazing uh, success with that episode, Dr. James Leung, who is here to drop some awesome pearls on simulation pearls for pediatrics. So uh, thanks, James, for coming on. And do you want to reintroduce yourself just so that the listeners are reintroduced to your uh, amazing contribution to this uh, podcast? Oh, thanks a lot, Kevin. I think uh, that's uh, a bit overstated. <laughs> um, so um, it's it's honestly a pleasure just to be back. I think it's a, a privilege just to be able to talk uh, to you guys. And I think, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your podcast and like really good job that you guys have been doing overall, I would say. Um, so yeah, quick introduction to myself. Uh, my name is Dr. James Leung. Um, you'll find me in the PEDS Emerge. I'm pretty sure I've talked to a lot of everyone uh, in the local Mac area, um, but uh, I'm one of the attending pediatric emergency physicians. Uh, background is in pediatrics with a fellowship in pediatric emerge and some uh, subspecialty training in simulation. I am the current director of, of uh, simulation in the pediatric emergency department. Um, and uh, have a big academic interest in um, in simulation in this realm for continuing practice development. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on to the podcast and dropping the, the knowledge for us. So I think the listeners want to really want to listen uh, know about what's happening in the pediatric world in terms of how they're preparing for the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, a lot of the spotlight has been on the adult emergency medicine and uh, and that is because that's kind of the, the population of patients that have been uh, getting the virus. However, it's, a, it's also important to make sure that our pediatric colleagues are prepared and to make sure that uh, we're prepared from all age levels. So can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing for your institutions in terms of preparation for the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I think um, our preparation, just in total acknowledgement of that fact for of COVID, is that it's been a little bit on the side about, you know, what is the actual true expectation of what would happen to children with COVID. Um, and I think the challenge overall is that we just don't really have as much experience or data that comes out from the pediatric population. Um, there is data, you know, from, um, from other populations that have already been involved that children are less um, uh, severely affected, and at least the numbers aren't um, as high, it looks like in pediatrics, but there certainly are is the potential for uh, the child to get very sick from this. Um, and I think from all of our, our own experiences, we know that 
even one child that's very, very sick can take a lot of resources uh, from an emergency department and from any sort of resuscitation team. So um, I think to be prepared um, from that perspective was one of the big um, one of the big goals, I think, uh, from us on the pediatric side of things. I think we also faced a lot of similar challenges as our general emergency colleagues about uh, preparedness just for pandemics in general, even to take a step back about how do we manage uh, critically sick children in a situation where uh, we need to manage our personal protective equipment, our personal safety um, as we resuscitate was one of the big things that within our institution, we were looking at planning. Um, And that stems not only within us in the emergency department, but um, overall general management within the entire children's hospital, because um, it's the entire system that we need to really uh, work upon. For sure. I think uh, I think managing the department and the expectations of this pandemic is probably some one of the biggest uh, barriers to uh, managing for disaster situations. Um, and so I think that our leadership is doing an excellent job, and I'm sure that your leadership is also doing the same as well. So that's uh, a lot of uh, weight to bear on the shoulders, but uh, I'm, uh, I've been personally very... Um, uh, proud of all the leadership in terms of how they've been handled this situation. So uh, that's great. Now, I think we're going to try to get to the meat of the podcast, and which is actually your uh, role as the simulation expert and leader for your institution at uh, McMaster Children's Hospital. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, you have been preparing and strategizing about uh, doing your simulation for pediatrics uh, to prepare for the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, so in sort of relation, I guess, to your earlier comment about the our administrators and the amazing work that they've been doing, I think it comes a lot of the work that I've been doing in preparing for this COVID-19 and pediatrics in our hospital has also been very closely integrated with their work. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest things I've found from this whole experience is how closely um, our work from simulation um actually mirrors and helps our administrators um, with their pandemic planning. So um, I've conducted uh, like a number of simulations and they've all involved immediate debriefing with the, with leadership groups at, at our hospital. So that would include um, not only our immediate leadership group with Anthony Crocco, our, our site lead for Pediatric Merge, uh, but it also involves our clinical lead, um, Christine Chastin, um, we've also done simulations uh, where we've involved infection prevention and control, infectious diseases, um, collaborative simulations with our PICU uh, leads, uh, Dr. Ranish Gupta as well too. So th- the biggest thing about one of the things I've learned, I think, from the from doing these simulations is again how closely we need to to interact with those groups. Um, that comes down to an organized process, as I was kind of uh, alluding to earlier. Um, we now sort of what I've tried to do every time that we've had a simulation is to um, uh, summarize all the points that we've learned in a shared document, share that with as many of our leaders as possible um, so that they have a summarized list of things that we've seen, seen things that we've observed and uh, produced a sort of like a checklist of this is what we need to address, or these are the latent safety threats that have come up from from our simulation uh, events. That's great. And it sounds like it's kind of teamwork and making sure that everyone's communicating and that uh, whatever you learn from your simulation experience that you uh, integrate into practice so that everyone is aware. Totally. Now, 
I think some of the listeners want to hear what you're doing kind of in the granular level. So uh, when did you guys start doing these simulations and how often are you doing them? And uh, can you tell us a little bit about the pearls, about the granular specifics about these simulations and who are involved and how the approach has been and are people doing it and, and, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, of course. We conducted our first uh, pandemics preparedness simulation in the middle of, uh, of actually beginning of March. I think around like March 7th was our first one, actually. Um, that was a big sort of fact-finding simulation. It was uh, one where we um, involved, and this is fortunately before um, a lot of the stuff really uh, became prevalent and all the specialists' time was occupied. Uh, but we got like infection control, IPAC, Oc Health, um, our, our ED leadership team to observe uh, a resuscitation that was just conducted um, for a COVID potential patient. We figured out lists upon lists of latent safety threats from that event. And essentially, and I think um, this may echo sort of our experience from our, our, our general group, uh, we've essentially had to completely redesign how we conducted resuscitations for anyone that presents actually uh, with, with fever or respiratory distress or whatnot in our nurse department to the point where we had to change the room, right? We're no longer using our resuscitation room, which is not a negative pressure room, um, and had to completely design a new room, i.e. Our, resuscitation, our negative pressure room to serve as a resuscitation room for this COVID pandemic. I think that, again, mirrors what's going on with our, with our general sites. What that then evolved in terms of is uh, we started conducting almost bi-weekly in-situ simulations involving our in-situ group. Unfortunately, this captured upon the lower vol- clinical volume volumes that we we're all experiencing. And we found that even from that, it was not enough time to sort of address all the all the design issues that needed to come about. And we changed it around so that we were conducting almost bi-weekly inside you simulations, but in a uh, rapid cycle uh, deliberate practice format. And what that boils down to is simulations where we wanted to focus on one specific aspect of the resuscitation. And um, rather than doing just one simulation over, you know, like a 30 minute to 60 minute interval, um, we ended up uh, repeating those, those small little sections of the simulation five or six times. And each time resetting back to sort of a, an initial start point, conducting a simulation for a small period of time, reviewing the things that we liked or didn't like about it changing things in between, restarting it up again, and repeating that same cycle over and over just to give us more iterative uh, iterative time um, to be available. So it allowed us to address a number of design issues, latent safety threats uh, in a shorter amount of time. Those all involved graciously all of our um, attending staff that had time available during their shifts were able to participate. Uh, we had all of our amazing nursing group uh, participate. Our RT group was super fantastic helping us out with that. Um, we all got some collaboration with our PICU group as well, too, to help us with some of those. We even had some people that were not on duty that would come in um, either, you know, an hour before their shift started or stay late uh, to help us with those activities. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, I'll say it again, it's teamwork, right? It's the ability for everyone to work together, put in those extra hours to make sure that our, uh, uh, not only our, our patients safe, but also our healthcare workers as well. So I think, you know, that's, that's amazing. I mean, obviously we knew that uh, the pediatric groups going to, we're going to do an amazing job, you know, changing the way that they 
uh, think in terms of the COVID-19, making sure they're prepared, rooms are changed, and et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about some of the pearls you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, honestly, I think this has been such a great learning opportunity, especially for myself as a simulationist. There's so many things I've learned um, going through this. And I have to say, number one, that like a lot of things that I've learned haven't just come from myself. I, like this, I've stood on the shoulder of so many giants. All the people that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you yourself, like a lot of people have given suggestions. People in my division have given suggestions to improve. So not all this, you know, like comes from me, like overall. But I think, um, you know, someone that's gone through this, there's a lot of lessons I think that we can all learn together to improve our practice with these types of simulations going forward. Um, I think, I mean, kind of to divide it maybe up into a few different groups, like clinical stuff, like crisis resource management, uh, institutional kind of level things. I think for, number one, from a, from a clinical perspective, one of the biggest pearls I think that um, I've learned is that, you know, from the actual clinical cases that we have, that we're actually starting to see now, being able to nimbly respond um, to what has actually happened in those clinical cases and conduct simulations from the lessons that we learned from those actual clinical experiences is like, is beyond critical. And I think what that also feeds back to is like the essential, essential, essential role of clinical debriefing. So we've had um, patients presenting in extremis. We have been fortunate to have amazing clinical debriefing occur um, post-event from that. And suggestions from those uh, events have allowed us and will allow us to continue to like refine and develop any sort of educational activities and whatnot um, as we progress from this and design issues that progress from this. I think... Um, I've alluded to it and you've alluded to it before from a CRM perspective. One of the biggest things I think I've learned from this is that really, honestly, it all comes down to interprofessional collaboration. Like this is such a crazy challenge that um, all of us are facing right now. And there's no way that none of us can successfully care for our any of our, our patients um, without relying on each other. There's so much stuff that's happening right on right now that the only way we're going to get through this is as a team. And it's through teamwork that we can accomplish more than what we can accomplish ever on our individual level. And what that comes down to, honestly, is that interprofessional collaboration. Figuring out ways to really collaborate um, with your interprofessional colleagues is one of the, the critical things. So um, I neglected, but absolutely critical in the work that we've been doing is just the really close working relationship um, that our simulation group has had with our nursing educator uh, group. In fact, really honestly, our nursing educator is part of our simulation team and they're counted as part of it. Um, but from our work that we are, what we've done, we've created like pathways and also like even like a general kind of guideline uh, on how we conduct protected resuscitations as well as protected code blues uh, in our emergency department. And it's from interprofessional collaboration with that, with the perspective of what an RN would need to know what an RT would need to know uh, that, uh, you know, our simulations have been able to, to take hold uh, and really, uh, really improve things. I think one of the big challenges that comes from all this is just sort of the institutional design things that we have to come up with uh, through our sim activities. You know, as someone that's not specifically a QI person with QI specific training, I think uh, one of the lessons is to, you know, defer to your, your QI experts. Because, you know, part of our, the simulationist job is to find latent safety threats or to highlight them or our, our observations, but it's also to give space um, and opportunity for our QI leads to do the magic that they've been trained to, to, to you know, address. 
And one of the things I've picked up um, from sort of the, what they've what they've been doing is honestly, it comes down to a lot of redundancy and planning before. Um, so a lot of the things that we design and a lot of things that we we look at improving upon, there's no one size fits all sort of solution. Uh, and in fact, what we're trying to do is design a system that is as flexible to account for individual provider variability. Um, and it possesses a number of redundancies, for example, like relying on more than one system, for example, um, to, to communicate um, between your different teams during these resuscitations. Does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, for sure. Thanks for, thanks for dropping those pearls, for sure. I think the, the debriefing, the making sure everyone's on the same page, uh, talking about how to change the institutional policies, I think those are very, very important for sure. One of the things that you alluded to was the protect intubations and the protected code blues. Now, this is also obviously a major topic of discussion. What are some things that you've learned from doing simulation, especially in kids, right? Because a lot of the protected code blues and intubations, in at least in the you know the foam med world and the medical education world, has been about adults. And I think the pathways are starting to become more clear. But for kids, I think a lot of people still don't know what that entails. What are the nitty gritties about intubating a kid during COVID-19? Are you using the box? You know, what kind of PP are you using? It's the same. So I think, is, is there uh, any differences? And, and can you kind of walk us through a little bit about those kind of nitty gritty details about, say, the protected intubation? Like, what kind of things are you doing to prepare yourselves uh, as uh, pediatric emergency physicians? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, I'll, I'll start by saying that, um, quite honestly, a lot of the, I think the general resuscitation and protected resuscitations uh, and protected code blues, honestly, there's not too many things fundamentally that are different between children and and adults um, in, the, in the course of this. I think the guiding principles, number one, especially in this pandemic uh, situation, um, is really, you know, our safety. We need to really ensure that we are safe before we uh, proceed with anything. And I think the, the consideration that will be different when we encounter the child is that the stakes will seem very different and the emotional impact of that will be significantly higher. And, and um, it'll be exponentially, I think, more difficult when we see the child that presents an extremis, uh, either due to confirmed or suspected uh, COVID. I think to that note, um, in general, if I can speak in sort of general processes and considerations in that, um, I would say the the number one critical thing is that despite the emotional impact, despite, uh, honestly, the fear and the emotion that comes into that is still really, really plan ahead before you run, before you do things like don't rush into the room. If I can quote sort of the old, uh, you know, army seal, um, Navy seal, uh, quote of, you know, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, really, really plan and prepare. And that's the, that's the number one thing I think from pediatric, um, resuscitations, I would emphasize our challenge in specific when it comes to kids is, uh, this huge variability in terms of their uh, their sizes and their equipment uh, that we would need to gather. We have used the code, the, the intubation box. Um, we have them at Mumsy. They work for kids, but they require some planning just to go ahead. So, you know, before you go into the room, you might need, or even while you're in the room, you'll need to rely a little bit more on your RT colleagues because the sizes will vary, you know, in terms of your blades that you pick the equipment that you you gather um, in the room. 
um, and also the sort of technique that you want to use. Because um, we even had sort of internal discussions. You know, do you go for glide or you go for direct? I think because the child airways will be different, you might need to consider potentially, you know, what will lead you to first pass success uh, more. So if you aren't comfortable with video laryngoscopy in a child, that might be, or if that's not even possible, for example, like you don't have the glide equipment that's available, that might be adjustment that you'll have to make in that sort of situation. Fortunately, I think one of the things that's come out is that at least the aerosol generating potential of a child seems to be less than what you would see in an adult, uh, because, you know, they physically can't cough as much, uh, you know, stuff up in the air for us to get potentially infected with. So yeah, I think the, you know, if there's one sort of big pearl that I would drop from from doing these simulations, it's really plan, 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 uh, have your plan one, two, three ready for for your ABCs um, and have different, uh, different ways to do it. One of the other pearls I think is uh, take advantage of your Braslow carts as well in this situation. A lot of them have your airway equipment sort of already um, uh, pre-divided as well as your IV equipment uh, pre-divided as well too. Uh, I think a lot of us are are doing resuscitations where we aren't bringing the carts into the room. Um, one of the things that we discovered from one of the comments from our physicians and our um, and our, our simulations is that you can actually take the cart inserts out of the Brazil cart itself. So you don't have to take the whole thing in. You can literally just take out the airway stuff and the uh, IV equipment stuff and bring it into your room. If that, if you're going with a system, for example, where you're using quick packs where you're throwing into the rooms. Wow. There's, I mean, those are great pearls. I think things that I didn't even think about, like the AGMP for kids and um, obviously the emotional trauma that can go into, uh, you know, when these come, patients come into extremis. If I was going to add one other thing, sorry, to you, I was actually thinking, um, the other thing that, you know, you want to consider specifically when it comes to kids is, you know, why they are in cardiac, uh, potential cardiac arrest. If you know, you're showing, if you're seeing a child in, in, uh, in a rest situation and just to consider that fact, um, uh, that the child's physiologic response will be different. So many times if a child is arresting, um, their primary reason for rest, for arrest is preceding respiratory failure. So earlier airway interventions might be more critical, I think, in our population, um, at least when it comes to successful resuscitation. So earlier and more aggressive airway management, not necessarily saying that you know we need to go straight towards intubation right away, but watch that respiratory failure aspect um, a lot more closely in our, in our age group. Absolutely. I mean, you hear about kids always, you have to worry about the hypoxic arrest. So, um, and actually getting to that, and that's a great segue into the next question is, what kind of things are you doing to help, uh, if you can, pre-oxygenate and prepare for the airway? And then what kind of medications are you using? Are, this, are you using the same you know, ketamine, rocuronia, uh, or is it is it different? Is there a different strategy you're doing this for airways, or is it kind of the same as you've always been uh, in the past? Uh, nothing significantly different. Yeah, our... what. Uh, we're doing primarily for suggested RSI is ketamine, uh, one to two milligrams per kilogram IV, max 100 milligrams um, for ketamine. And uh, in terms of paralytic, um, either rocuronium or, or sucks. Um, there's specific considerations with sucks you have to be careful with. Again, that's the child that uh, has underlying neuromuscular uh, conditions that you're worried about or con- possible metabolic issues. Uh, if you're going for sucks, uh, it's one to two milligrams per kilogram IV. Max is 150 milligrams. 
uh, if you're going for rock, it's one to uh, 1.2 milligrams per kilogram IV and max um, like 100 milligrams uh, for rock. Uh, there's nothing, at least from the RSI drug medicines, we're specifically doing differently. Um, from a pre-oxygenation perspective as well, also nothing significantly different that our group is uh, looking at changing in our group. Um, we're fortunate, again, that our, that our physiology is a little bit different. We're fortunate to have um, usually much more baseline compliant lungs, less underlying uh, disease that's present uh, in, in patients. So we're primarily doing um, non-rebreather oxygen, um, nasoprongs if we need to, if the child can tolerate. That's the other pediatric consideration, if they can tolerate it. But generally, if they are heading towards respiratory failure, you, you won't see as much of the combativeness unless that's part of their presentation. But our primary pre-oxygenation methodology would still be uh, non-rebreather at this point. Um, and if we need to use bag mass ventilation, then that's the consideration we make, making sure that you know we're all in PPE. Um, sort of the general rules we would consider with BVM would be, again, using a two-handed person technique, uh, really using smaller tidal volumes with uh, squeezing the actual bag, and of course, using a viral filter and potential LMA um, if possible beforehand. Right. So in terms of the protected code blues, you're still doing... Uh non-ventilated CPR. I mean, hopefully this never happens to a kid, but I guess we have to uh, consider the worst. And that's what we're doing, right? preparing for the worst, uh, totally. but doing non, non-ventilated CPR until you can protect the airway with at least an LMA, uh, preferably uh, an ET tube and uh, and then bagging uh, as you've always done, I guess. A hundred percent, yep. Yep. All right. I think the next question i think i mean the thing is this podcast is actually really important not just for the pediatric hospitals but for the community hospitals and any kind of hospital where you do see uh, kids in extremis and so i think that this the pearls that you learn from this podcast hopefully you can take to any of your community departments and to make sure that uh, you're ready for the worst what are some major challenges you have found with doing these simulations uh, what are the main clinical challenges you've uh, noticed one of the things I think I've been reflecting upon a bit more recently, and this comes from more of like the simulationist perspective, is the sort of, I guess, the objectives of our simulations and how they change over time. What I've found, at least in my own experience, is that early on in our COVID pandemic preparedness, we've conducted a number of simulations closely integrated, you know, with administrative support to design a new resuscitation system, a lot of design-oriented thinking, a lot of latent safety threat identification, a lot of quality improvement, patient safety things that we identify. What I've discovered now is that once we've actually designed a system, what the emphasis now needs to potentially change is towards more education of our teams so we can work on our interprofessional collaboration, our, our crisis resource management, and then finally refining the system that we actually have designed. And this is a challenge that I think that I'm, I'm still working out how we do this best uh, because I figure like we've designed a system, now it comes to the point of us up training in the system and figuring out ways that we can um, disseminate, you know, the knowledge that we've gathered in, in an effective way. And I think, you know, this podcast is a great example of one way to consider that as well. But 
you know, are there other sort of just more shorter just-in-time simulations that we need to do? Other kind of background policy uh, modules that we want our staffing to complete just so that they kind of understand the pathways that have been developed. Um, any sort of other written review material that we can send out that's short and brief for our ready stressed staff just so that it, they can they can understand a bit more. I think that, uh, that that's kind of like the big challenge I think I'm uh, I'm currently facing at least with this. Other past challenges I would think as well too I think is is you know is the time with this just the rapid nature of us having to do so many simulations so quickly. A lot of nimble thinking in terms of pivoting towards changing our model of doing rapid cycle deliberate um, pandemic sims uh, was our solution for that but it was a lot of things that needed to rapidly change um, and also following up with a lot of the latent safety threats how do you actually organize like do that in an organized fashion with as many people and the right people making the changes and, and not sort of just quick fixes that don't really address the underlying issue that's truly going on is was the other challenge to make sure that again you're doing it the right way yeah absolutely i think the time issue for is for sure and and the other aspect that I, i've uh gained and when talking to the adult simulators is that uh their main concern is also the fact that things are changing so fast so something that you're teaching and uh, uh, you know figuring out latent safety threats uh, a week from uh, before, maybe now totally different now. So uh, have you guys been planning to do, you know, sims more uh, constantly so that, you know, you can adapt to the changes that's coming with uh, the evidence? Yeah, and I think even not only even like the changing in evidence, but like also I would also add like the additional challenge is just like changes in what we've actually recognized that we need to, right? For example, like we, one of the things we started just doing really quickly is like figuring out how we transport a patient in our hospital once we've actually intubated them um, in our emergency department. And how do we get them either to an OR if they have, you know, a trauma plus or minus COVID, or if that's where the additional COVID unit is the OR, right? Like how do we get them to the PICU in a safe fashion? And those are things that like we didn't even really think about initially. And, and then it's a new challenge all of a sudden that we have to face. Um, it's a new thing we have to, to, to overcome, right? And yeah, also exactly that, like how evidence is changing so quickly, like even about like protected CPRs um, and do we start chest compressions or not was a big debate, um, I, I think up until like a few, like a week ago, right? So yeah, that's been a big pivot and I think that's it, it comes down to another thing i think that 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 evolves from this is just you know i think this comes down to just a lot of straight up patience and i think being open with our overall group like our overall peds emerge group that we were we've been trying to work on is that like keeping the lines of communication open so that people on the ground can make suggestions and highlight us and know and just being honest that like this is such a moving target that you know when you hear something new you might see something new that changes if you find something new and you want to change it, it goes the other way. Like if, if someone from the ground wants to change something, then talk to the talk to our team, either our simulation team or your leadership team um, to make those changes rapidly. Because I think that's the other, that's the other sort of anxiety provoking thing, right? Um, we talk about again, like how this changes, how our practice changes, but the other impact of this is just the overall just general anxiety and morale effect of all these constant pivots. I think it's uh, just a, uh... You know, I think the the main anxiety for a lot of people is, you know, what are we doing when things change? Yeah. And because then you have some people who have learned some of the tricks that 
were useful about a week or two ago. And then there's something new. And then so some other people have adapted to the new prospect. And, but then the yeah. people that have trained in the older aspect, which is only a week ago, uh, <laughs> are now saying, you know, that's, that's not cool. And, and then now there's a bit of miscommunication. And, and as you know, uh, in resuscitations, communication is probably the most important part. Right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that has been the biggest challenge. Uh, and so, like you said, uh, James, uh, trying to make sure that everyone's on the same boat and, and make sure that we're communicating constantly mm-hmm. and making sure that those PDSA cycles and you know, quality improvement happen so that we continue to better ourselves and to make yeah. sure that we're up to date, I think is the, the main message from what I'm getting from everyone uh, who's in simulation. Yeah. And I think um, like in regards to those kind of like constant pivots that develop. I think one of the big things that I've picked up from from going through this whole experience is whatever we design has to have redundancies based in terms of it. So the biggest example I can think about is our two-way sort of communication systems. And what I mean by that is I think we're all doing resuscitations now where we have like an inside the room team that's involved in direct patient contact. And we have an outside team that helps support, for example, running and grabbing equipment, charting, et cetera. And um, the communication between those two teams can be really challenging, right? Like, especially if you're in a negative pressure room, no one can hear what's going on. No one from the outside team can hear what's going on. And for situational awareness in that situation is just, is a a potential nightmare. I think a lot of us have heard the example of using a baby monitor. Um, And then some people are using walkie talkies. Some people are using cell phones slash Skype slash, you know, video conferencing. Some people are using Vocera uh, as a system. Some people are using actually a landline with just like on speaker mode, right? And I think, and I'll speak especially to us as emergentologists, we always work with what we have that's available to the best of our ability and we overcome that. And I think that's what helps us as emerge docs, right? Like we want to design these systems that actually encourage that because if we just go through one specific prescriptive pathway that clearly won't fit everyone, then that we're just setting us up ourselves up for failure. So at least to go back to like the two-way communication methods, what we ended up doing and what we learned is to allow multiple ways to communicate. So um, we are installing currently, thank you, Anthony, a a landline into one of our negative pressure rooms. We also have a walkie-talkie that's available that can just be thrown into the room if you need to do, for example, more directed communication about orders. We've also added like a whiteboard for you to write down orders that you can just display to the outside team um, if you need that there. For example, medication orders, so you don't have to repeat them over and over and over again, especially in our peds world. Uh, we've also allowed for some people who want to use Vocera, use Vocera. And I think providing the environments for our teams to flourish and resuscitate according to the varying situations um, and giving those various tools and letting the team as the expert that's on the ground, managing that current patient in front of them. That's the pathway I think that I've learned, at least from this episode that sets us up for success. For sure. Thanks for those pearls. For sure. I I agree with you there. Uh, I think we're at the end of our podcast, James. Thanks for coming on and uh, being an expert. Uh, Do you have any last minute thoughts or comments uh, before we finish off today? Yeah, I think honestly, 
it's been a big learning opportunity, I think, for all of us. And I think I use learning opportunity like deliberately. We've all faced challenges from this. I think we're all there's frustrations we've all had with all this. I think our wellness is really, really important in all this. But I think at the end of this, when we come out of it, that we'll all get better from this. And whether that comes from simulation, whether or not that comes from um, whether or not that comes from our actual clinical experiences, I think these are all important experiences that we all need to recap. We all need to keep those um, keep those um, close to our hearts. We need to, at the end of this, just all share and debrief. You know, what have we learned from all this? Is what I is one of the big things I think um, I would encourage us all to consider doing uh, when this all ends up. The other thing I think um, I emphasize that I think it early enough in this podcast is this is all teamwork. We design systems, we're doing simulations to make our environment work, but it all boils down to creating an environment so that we can flourish as an interprofessional team to manage our patients and ultimately do that, manage our patients and help them out in the in this in this most difficult of times, right? Um, so this is a work in progress. There's a lot of things that need to change. We're not by na- many of us are not patient people by nature, um, myself included. And this is that's the other thing. We have so many things we want to change and do and act, but having a deliberate way to patiently come up with solutions in an organized fashion will also help too. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for those important uh, comments. I think that as devastating this pandemic has been for all of us. Uh, including all of the healthcare workers, I think that the one thing that we should come out of this is we're going to learn and we're going to get better next time um, because we don't know if this is going to happen next time. So we need to be prepared. And so that uh, we make sure that, uh, you know, every time uh, we're able to take care of our patients better. So thanks again, James, for all of your comments and pearls and your essentially uh, guru knowledge. Um, <laughs> I don't think you know, I can always qualify that for all the people that are listening to this. <laughs> I think that they're, they're much more gurus than I could ever hope to be. <laughs> hey, don't cut yourself short, right? Uh, but uh, thanks again for your time. And, uh, you know, always a pleasure to have you on board. Oh, anytime. Um, happy to be back. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Welcome to this month's episode of Resident Corner. We're so glad you could join us. During the COVID-19 pandemic, on most days, it feels like coronavirus is taking over our everyday life. Whether it's at work, in the emergency department, where you're seeing patients, whether it's when you come home and worry about how to best decontaminate yourself, before seeing your loved ones, or whether it's trying to figure out how to stay afloat with all the information overload, I'm sure that some of us more than others are struggling. For this month's episode, we wanted to take a different approach and ask some of the current emergency medicine residents at McMaster University on how they're dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. Whether it's from a personal life perspective, how they're trying to keep sane, or from an academic life perspective, how they're trying to keep up with the information overload, 
we wanted to hear some of the strategies that they're using currently. So today with us, we have a number of different residents who will answer various different questions regarding how they're coping with the coronavirus-19 pandemic. We'll have residents like our very own Chief Extraordinaire, Dr. Alvin Chin, current PGY4. We'll have a group of residents from the PGY3 cohort, specifically people like Dr. Leila Nasser, Dr. Tara Stratton, Dr. Noreen Walji, and Dr. Mark Hewitt. And we'll also have Dr. Jada Fitzpatrick, current PGY2, and a big proponent for wellness in the residency program together with Leila. So thank you for tuning in and let's see what our residents have to say. Firstly, we wanted to ask the residents how they're staying sane during this pandemic. Is everyone at home making sourdough bread these days? Is everyone just running marathons? What are you doing to stay sane during the coronavirus-19 pandemic? So I think the anticipation that things will get worse is actually what can be the most anxiety-provoking. This is why having a buddy who can relate to these stresses is helpful, which was a suggestion by our program, because they can be there to help ground you in these situations. As for one specific strategy, there's a lot of advice out there that we should be using our time outside work to be productive and develop a new skill. And I think for those who this works for, that's fantastic. But in a time where there is so much uncertainty, some of us will just need to hang on to our constant comforts, and that's okay too. This is a time where we need to be kind to ourselves and listen to what we need as an individual. For me, I chose to use my time building on an existing skill. And like many others, I chose cooking because it's something I have to do anyway. So I made it more mentally engaging by trying some more complicated recipes from my culture. And that helps me feel more connected with my roots as well. So whether you want to be on one end of the spectrum and learn a new language or something like that, or be on the other end and start a new Netflix series, I think as long as you are engaging your brain in some sort of break from the pervasiveness of the COVID pandemonium, it's one way to stay afloat. So one of the things I've been doing as a resident to stay sane during this COVID pandemic is minimizing any side projects that I'd had going on before this all started and maximizing any enjoyable distractions I have available to me at home. So what am I doing to stay sane during this pandemic? Uh, well, I think as everybody who knows me is aware of, I'm a really big runner. Normally I run like multiple times a week, uh, depending on how busy my work schedule is. And that's definitely something that I've continued, uh, if not increased during this pandemic and all the social distancing and self-isolation and such. Um, luckily, I have a track very close to my apartment uh, that's sort of behind a school that's still currently open because unfortunately most of the trails here are closed. And it's not that busy most times of the day that I've been. I've been sort of morning, evening in during the daytime. And even if there are people, everybody's been really good about keeping to the different sides of the track and when passing and keeping at least two meters or more. Uh, so that's been really, really, really nice. Definitely would be going absolutely insane without the running. Uh, so that's sort of my main thing. I've tried doing other activities home and done a little bit of yoga and some online classes and things like that but it's just not 
the same for me as what I'd normally be doing going outside running 10 plus kilometers a day. Um, so it's been really nice to have that and to have a little bit of time outdoors and in the fresh air. I think like another thing that I'm sure lots of people are doing is uh, all the sort of video conferencing hangouts with various groups of friends and family and things like that. It definitely has been helpful to sort of replace some of the activities I'd normally do, like going out to a bar or out for restaurants or playing board games or cards or things like that with friends and translating that into the virtual realm. I found a website of this card game that me and a bunch of my uh, university friends play and we all zoomed in together and then played this remotely and uh, that's definitely been really, really fun. So in terms of COVID and things that I've been doing over this time to keep myself sane, um, I've definitely been using the increased flexibility that I have in my time to exercise more regularly. I try to get outside as much as I can. I'm unfortunately not a runner and can't be combining my outside time with my workout time, but I just try and go for a walk or to have a quick coffee break outside, especially to enjoy the sunshine and then this weather that's slowly becoming like spring, uh, just trying to enjoy what I can outside. I've also spent a lot more time connecting with family and friends. And not just over FaceTime and video, but also through Zoom videos, which we've been doing over with bigger groups of friends and family. And we've even started to do a weekly Jeopardy over Zoom, uh, with mostly with the cousins. And then last night we did for the first time with the parents and it was a lot of fun. Everyone really enjoyed uh, a lot of planning that goes into place for it, but well worth it. I think for me, uh, something that's always been key in residency in general is maintaining uh, sort of a standardized schedule. Um, Specifically, my coping mechanism in residency is typically working out almost every day immediately after um, a shift. Uh, and so that hasn't changed. Uh, I, early on in the pandemic, went and bought a, a number of weights as well as um, some cardio equipment to put in my condo. And so from that standpoint, uh, I'm still getting as much sort of fitness and, and sort of that mental break from medicine as possible. Uh, everyone knows, I think, with COVID, uh, the news has it, our Facebook has it, uh, our half days have it. And so it's impossible to get away from it. And so this has been a, a nice coping strategy for me in order to figure out workouts and things from home. A lot of the athletes and fitness uh, industry, people that I follow or have uh, followed programming in the past are doing a lot of free open workouts at home. And so um, I've been doing a lot of those as well as my gym is also doing Zoom classes. So staying fit, staying active and trying to stay specifically to the same schedule that I have before. Uh, trying to not break things up too much and get into that COVID funk that I think we're all starting to uh, get into. As someone who loves going out and spending time with friends, this COVID pandemic has kind of been a downer for me, but I try to stay sane with three things. So first, I try to stick to some sort of daily checklist. I usually start my day off by making some coffee with one of my new mocha pots, and then I turn on my smart speaker to the daily news. Before the day is over, I try to get some sort of exercise in, and before I head to bed, I take at least two minutes to reflect on the day and something that I'm grateful for. Secondly, I've been trying to maintain some level of normalcy with my hobbies. Prior to all of this, I used to love going out to try new restaurants in Hamilton, but that's obviously not an option anymore. As a replacement, I've let myself do takeouts twice a week, and I've been trying some new recipes that I didn't have time to try before all of us were stuck indoors. Lastly, I've been doing a lot of Zoom hangouts. Between watching movies or playing Jackbox or just catching up, I try to spend time with my different friend groups at least once a week to scratch that extrovert itch. It's really remarkable to see the diverse strategies that people have taken. Some are developing a new skill, some are adding on a new hobby, and others 
are just going back to their roots and what they know keeps them sane from the get-go, whether it's like hanging out with friends virtually or doing the things that they knew they were good at and just developing further. And sometimes you don't need to be productive. In times like these, we need to really focus on the things that make us happier and keep us connected with each other. Now, what about dealing with information overload? As current emergency medicine residents, I'm sure that we've spent more time than we would like to admit looking through Twitter accounts, various articles, various new websites and resources that have come up with regards to managing patients with COVID. How are you dealing with sifting through all that information? Are you constantly trying to learn? Are you just ignoring it altogether? Let's hear from a couple of our residents. In terms of just sifting through all the information that's coming out about COVID, I do tend to use Twitter mostly, but my Twitter is just very North American centric because of who I follow. So I do watch the news and I try to watch uh, global news networks to get a sense of what's going on outside of our immediate bubble. Listening to a lot of the webinars uh, that have been going on through our own institution, or even when I've been on community rotations, they've had uh, webinars going on for their own departments. And those have been really useful because it really summarizes a lot of the evidence and translates it into practice for us in the emergency department and how we're going to use that. I mean, I get all the information synthesized and I'm not really going through the literature on my own and I'm not reading studies and interpreting them on my own. So I'm very lucky that people are doing that for me and it reduces the amount of information overload that you can so easily get with COVID. I have to agree with Noreen that here in McMaster, at least, we've been very lucky with having constant communication between ourselves, the program director, system program director, but also with other current staff, whether they're working in the emergency department or the intensive care unit, keeping us up to date about the latest strategies and best care for patients with coronavirus. And we've been spoiled with having access to that kind of information without necessarily needing to rely on someone's message on Twitter and taking that for granted, or on the other hand, having to read through various different papers that seem to constantly be published in various journals. And lastly, something that I've personally been struggling with is having a strategy on how to respond to family, friends, and loved ones constantly asking you questions regarding COVID. Whether it's, when should I go to the hospital? Do I have coronavirus? Do I need to get a screening test? Do I meet the criteria to get the swab test? And many more similar to that. I wanted to get an idea of what our residents are currently doing to cope with this. I've actually been very lucky. People haven't asked me too much about COVID as a medical professional. Other family and friends who are in the healthcare field or my parents, I, I do tell them stories and things that are happening um, that we're hearing out of our ICUs. But other than that, I have actually been very lucky that I haven't had to talk about it too much. So I've been fairly closed off from family and friends in that respect. To answer the question of how I've been responding to my family or friends asking questions about COVID, uh, the answer is it depends. 
for more distant friends or acquaintances, I've been more careful to avoid taking on a little bit too much mental energy. And I've been directing anybody with questions about COVID to the website by the CMA, covidquestions.ca, because I find it's pretty comprehensive. And it's a central platform for all of those things. For family and close friends, I have actually been engaging regularly and answering any questions that they have and their genuine curiosity, mostly because I want to leverage my ability to combat misinformation where I can. Um, And another thing that I've actually been doing with family members is encouraging them to check in with me when they're feeling unwell and are worried about going to the eMERGE, mostly because I'm concerned some of my relatives might actually even avoid seeking necessary care out of concern for COVID, and the telehealth wait times have been quite long right now. Your mileage might vary on this approach, uh, and everybody knows how feasible this may or may not be in their own families, but for me, it's been a way that I try to take care of others around me. Thank you to everyone for tuning in today. To our resident speakers, thank you for sharing some of the strategies that you're currently using in dealing with the coronavirus-19 pandemic. I hope you've learned something new, just like I have from listening to their strategies. I also want to give a big shout out to our current emergency medicine chiefs, Dr. Loren Cook-Shemelz and Dr. Alvin Chen for all the work they've put in into transitioning our academic half day into a complete virtual platform. I also want to put a shout out to Dr. Kelly Van Diepen and the rest of the residents who played a huge role into adapting our academic half day. They're more up to date with what's happening around us these days. And last but not least, Dr. Farah Jizuli, who has been our resident contact lead for all COVID-19 resident issues. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in and see you next time. Stay safe, everyone. Are you tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing, rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Teresa Chen. Thank you to a special edition of um, Teaching That Counts COVID edition. Uh, So I'm here with Aleem as always, and we're going to talk to you a little bit in this special edition about uh, first, a little bit of uh, changes that we're doing to our clinical clerkship. So for the Mac and Merge family, I'll have Aleem talk a little bit about that. And then we're going to talk a little bit about like clinical teaching for our residents because our clerks aren't in the clin- clinical space right now, how we can support our residents as best we can uh, in this age of the COVID pandemic. So Aleem, do you want to talk a little bit about what we're doing with the medical students? I think most people have noticed that the medical students are nowhere to be seen on shift right now. Yeah, it's been kind of eerily quiet without them around. We definitely miss them. But thanks to all of you who have reached out, offering support, ideas, and enthusiasm for our clerkship. We are moving virtually into 2020. We've shifted learning sessions. We're also doing small group simulations. So we're going to have one faculty and a handful of students go through ACLS algorithms together. Uh, And then we're also doing case-based, asynchronous Slack learning channels. Yeah. Um, I, I was uh, on the first team with Aline to kind of redo the clerkship um, when they pulled the clerks and they're like, you have 14 days left of programming to do. And so we've already experimented <laughs> with this. Uh, we've already kind of dove into having the Slack-based discussion. 
based on that feedback, uh, we're going to slow down the discussion and make them more leisurely paced rather than trying to do a case every day, which was a little ambitious of us at the beginning. So it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be uh, super stressful. It should be something that you can intercalate in your day. And we also have some resident volunteers that have stood up to help uh, teach the clerks as well, which I think is awesome. So thanks so much to all the residents and the staff people who have stood up to help with all of this. And uh, stay tuned for more uh, insights from your email inboxes uh, of how you can get involved with this virtual clerkship. Hit me up. Please give me your ideas. Uh, we'd love to have you involved with clerkship because uh, the entire clerkship is is online, so we can add another Zoom meeting to our calendar. All right, so we do have the opportunity now to talk a little bit more about uh, the residents themselves. And uh, they're in our clinical spaces, um, maybe a little bit less in the regional campuses because there aren't as many of them. But most of our uh, residents are considered essential service uh, providers, just like we are. And they're kind of in the trenches with us right now during this pandemic. And so on a given shift, um, you might see some of the on-service residents uh, definitely at our major teaching sites and also in uh, our regional campuses as well, just out there with us on the lookout for new cases and to take care of our patients right now in this great time of need. So Alim, I think that we should probably talk a little bit about how we can support them because I think this is a very unusual time, right? I think this is like an unprecedented time. I mean, for those of you who are around during SARS, um, this is probably something that you at least have some familiarity with. For myself as a junior staff, I'm constantly struggling with it. And I think one of the big things that I've realized is that it's important to be human and be honest about the emotions that you're going through. And the other piece is embracing the uncertainty of the moment. Like there's some things we just don't know. I don't know when this is going to end. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know how that's going to affect things like exams and programming and, and even clerkship like we were talking about. And so Leaning into that skill set we have as Emerge Docs, where we can accept and embrace uncertainty, I think at least gives you a little bit of peace in the day. And being a human role model to our learners to say, you know what, I'm worried about this. I'm scared about some of the same things that you're scared about. I'm scared about how this is going to impact my family, my work, my life, all of those things. And, and I think really having those conversations with your, with your residents and your learners really at least helps give them an outlet to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I think that would be really amazing if we start having those conversations even on shift or afterwards. I think uh, some of us have a WhatsApp group for the residents so that they can kind of talk about their uh, questions and stuff like that. And I know they've been doing some town halls with all the residency program leadership. They've been really, really responsive. So kudos to all our resident um, uh, educators who've been really kind of putting their uh, best foot forward um, in this time of need. Uh, I think the other thing to um, think about would be how we can make sure that they still have a good learning experience. So I think we have so many other episodes about great teaching. I think that what I want to remind people is that just because there's a pandemic doesn't mean that we aren't teachers anymore. We may not have all the answers for every single thing that we encounter, but there are still routine cases that are coming through the door and not all of them have COVID. So remember, you are still a teacher and you still know what you're doing. And so uh, don't forget get and lose sight of that. Um, it's easy to have this whole thing because it's so eerie and weird right now um, and ominous in some ways uh, for us to forget that uh, we're still the same people that we were six weeks ago when before all of this stuff uh, really manifests itself. So I do want to encourage people to think about how we would actually 
continue being the people that we always were. So you, you probably can't use the same tools that you did before, but you can still, you know, prep some quiz questions on a couple of pieces of paper and bring them in and then just uh, throw them in the recycling bin when you're done. Uh, you can still give feedback. Um, you might just have to type it on the hospital computers rather than dictating them into your phone because you don't want to, uh, your phone to be a giant phone mite. Um, you might want to still kind of chat with the learners about um, additional readings that you might want to suggest and things like that. So um, you can send them an email after the shift or send them a text message or a WhatsApp message later. Uh, I think there's lots of ways that we can still be the teachers that we are um, and always have been and just reaffirming that the awesome stuff that you do every day and take for granted um, needs to be celebrated right now because it's, it's hard to do all of that stuff and contextualize yourself in the middle of this pandemic. And so many of us are involved in other things. And I know there's so many leaders out there in our community who are leading the charge in the pandemic planning. They're on the front end, they're on the back end, they're high up in the administration, looking at the different areas. And this is a great time to give residents insight into those areas because mm. they're going to be the leaders in the future, right? Because 15, mm -hmm. 20, 30, 40 years from now, when we have another pandemic, they're going to be the ones stepping up into those roles. And the lessons that you can teach them now will be invaluable for them. Mm -hmm. And so don't be afraid to talk about what you're doing and what's your role in the pandemic. Because I know a lot of us are on committees or involved in different ways. So don't hesitate to show that side of, of your life to residents. Because I know as Emerge Docs, we love the double careers, right? We all like to have our clinical life and then we all have something else that really gets us excited and interested as well. Yeah, role modeling that through transparent means, even just saying, hey, you know, like tomorrow I'm going to be doing telemedicine and that's going to be a new thing. You know, like that's the idea is that you can explain if you are going to be involved with telemedicine, what is it like? You can maybe describe people kind of the experience and what uh, you've been understanding is a new frontier, at least what we do in emergency medicine. So I definitely think that there's a lot of ways that we can share our stories and make sure that we tell our stories. You know, like in Hamilton, the musical, they talk about who, you know, who lives, who dies, and who tells your story. Well, while you're still alive, I think that you have an impetus to tell your own. Uh, so just make sure you share kind of your knowledge and wisdom, because I think it's really important. So um, because someday, you know, when we want to go on, uh, that might be the story that sticks with someone in their brain that they've, you know, pulled down from that long-term memory and they whip it out to, to, to have the great idea the next time around when we have another big pandemic or disaster situation. You had to drop a Hamilton reference. My Hamilton tickets were canceled thanks to COVID, okay? Come I know, on, I know. Don't worry. We can have a, what we can do is we can book a time and on Zoom, you and I can just go from the beginning to the end of the syllabus and just sing the yeah. whole thing, okay? Just, just sing it. I know, mine were canceled tip, as well. uh, yeah. Pro tip, a lot of theaters are offering their whole repertoire online for free. So that's my Friday night plans right now. <laughs> exactly. There you go. All right. Okay. Well, uh, thanks so much for uh, um, tuning in to the special edition. We'll be pushing this out just in between as a special episode. So it'll be a standalone uh, COVID special edition of Teaching That Counts. And uh, thanks for tuning in. You know, a special thank you to all the healthcare workers, residents, learners, staff, nurses, people who are cleaning the hospital, IT, all those guys, all the residents who went out and did the PPE drive. You guys are doing important work and, and staying on the front lines and, uh, and we're really proud of you. Thank you, Mac Emerge. That's all we have for this month's Teaching That Counts. Tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl to up your game. Special shout out to Krista Dauhos, one of our family medicine residents who's played an integral part in making all these lovely infographics that we'll have for you in the show notes. And thanks to John Sherbino for his mentorship. See you next time.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge Podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!